0: Hello there members and people of the podcast We're now moving on to Salem Witch Trials So we're going over to the American side Now we've done all the British We even did Mary Bates Known as a Yorkshire witch Though she wasn't really a witch She was just a felon really um, we start with the introduction of Old valuables Cabinet. If the prayers of good people may obtain this favour of God, that the mysterious assaults from hell now made upon so many of our friends may be thoroughly detected and defeated, we suppose the curious will be entertained with as rare an is- history as perhaps an age has had. Benjamin Harris, April 1692 Tucked away in a corner of the Peabody Essex Museum sits one of the great artefacts of early American history. A small oak valuables cabinet. Its elaborate carvings, turnings and geometric shapes speak to its beauty and craftsmanship. The centre panel features a sunburst that surrounds the inscription I and B P 79. The initials refer to its owners Joseph and Bathsheba Pope. The letter was not yet utilised in the 17th century, so it's kind of like a double duty for it. The popes were married in 1679 and the cabinet, presumably a wedding gift, was likely made by James Simmons, a master furniture maker. It was passed down in the family until it was acquired by the museum at auction only in 2000, the year 2000. The popes were Quakers who lived in Salem Village, members of the small but significant minority of religious dissenters who had been persecuted by the Bay Colony. In 1692, the popes turned the tables like some of her neighbours Bathsheba, said she was afflicted by witches, specifically claiming that the spectres of John Proctor, Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse, tormented her. Joseph Pope added his testimony against Proctor. The court convicted and executed all three of the accused A rare early piece of locally made 17th century furniture with an impeccable history of ownership and a strong tie to the Salem witch trials, the cabinet is a remarkable relic. A status reflected in the formidable, well, 2.4 million that the museum had to pay for it when they won it in auction 2000. Yet, that makes such a cabinet truly a treasure, is rarely noted. The Pope's nephew was Benjamin Franklin. Specifically, Bathsheba's youngest sister, Abia, was Franklin's mother. In one generation, one Massachusetts family would go from victims of witchcraft to producing one of the leaders of American Enlightenment. While his aunt and uncle would join the frenzied call for witch executions, Ben Franklin would make the reasoned case for a new nation. Dedicated to liberty and freedom. The Pope cabinet shows just how soon after Salem that the American colonies would turn their back on the age of witch hunts and embrace the age of reason. The story of the Popes and their cabinet also reveals the complexities behind the trials in Salem and elsewhere in New England. As well as some of the inaccuracies in how these events are often portrayed. Traditional textbooks and popular tales make the trials sound like a Puritan affair. Yet, the popes were Quakers. The afflicted in Salem was almost all-female, and are usually referred to as girls. Yet, Bathsheba was forty when she made her accusations. Furthermore, men had made up the majority of accused in New England witchcraft cases before 1692. Bathsheba and her cohorts suffered spectral attacks. That is, they were assaulted by a spirit that was invisible to everyone except the afflicted. This, too, was rare before Salem. Typically a witch was accused of maleficum, or harmful witchcraft. Maleficum could cause injury to livestock crops, destruction of property, illness or death, but a witch need not employ a spectre to cause such evil. Though what happened in 1692 is often portrayed as a local affair, Bathsheba Folger Pope was born and raised on distant Nantucket Island. As the circle of accusations grew in Salem village, the afflicted would even point the finger at people they had never seen in person. These are but a few of the contradictions behind what happened. In 1692, during a witch hunt that is many ways was a aberration from early proceedings, The striking design motifs of the Pope cabinet provide us some insight into life in 1692 as well. The decorations are an interplay of classical elements, geometry, and five curves. Like the chest, early Salem was a rich mosaic of ideas and influences. Its settlers came from different religions and backgrounds and held a range of beliefs. Darkened with age, the cabinet now appears appears sombre and drab, just as the Puritans are all too often depicted. Yet, constructed from different types of wood, with contrasting colours and highlighted with black and red paint, in 1679, the cabinet, as well as the people of Salem, were far from dull. Rather, they were complicated, vibrant and bright. Like the Pope cabinet, the story of Salem witch trials is both a relic and a living piece of history. Little wonder that it has drawn many to it. In 1970, John Dimos began an article on witchcraft in the American Historical Review with a statement, It is faintly embarrassing for a historian to summon his colleagues to still under the consideration of early New England witchcraft. Here, surely, is a topic that previous generations of writers have sufficiently worked. Since then, the authors have published more than 30 books on this subject, including two outstanding ones from Dimos himself. Scholars have explored the Salem story, as well as many smaller, episodes in newer England, through a variety of perspectives. There is an equally impressive output of scholarship on witchcraft in England and Europe. In the words of Nathaniel Hawthorne, a native son of Salem, who was preoccupied by the trials, it is the ultimate twice-told tale. New books come out regular, each with their explanations of what happened. It was a religious crisis an outbreak of ergot poisoning yeah, that Lyme disease the result of a land squabble in Salem village an outbreak of frontier war hysteria a misogynistic statement of patriarchy so it's not without considerable humility that I now offer this it would be impossible to do so without drawing up on any deep well of knowledge and inspiration by these historians so much of the works here come from various historians all put together different theories things that historians agree on things that they don't agree on as you know we all have our own ways of looking at things anyway but we have to look at everything in order to know everything right well the Salem Witch Trials a pivotal moment in American history Hmm. The great scholar of American puritanism, Perry Miller, called them a non-event. It had no effect on the ecclesiastical or political situation. It does not figure into the institutional or ideological development. Few scholars have challenged him. Instead, most have focused more on the cause than on the long-term consequences. They stress the fact that Salem was a small part of a much larger pattern. Although England and her colonies saw fewer cases of witchcraft accusations than on the continent, they were still common and long-standing. Between 1645 and 1647, the height of the English civil wars, more than 250 people were accused of witchcraft in East Anglia. That's the area to the north and east of London, known for its commercial farming of wheat and other grains. More than a 100 were executed, 15 in one day. In Salem, a total of 25 people lost their lives. 19 were executed, one was pressed to death, and five died in prison. The great age of witch hunts in Europe and America spanned roughly from the period 1400s to 1775. I me from Russia to Bermuda, from Scotland to Brazil, witch hunts took place throughout the European world. During that time, about a 100,000 people were prosecutor for witchcraft, and at least 50,000 people were sentenced to death. In fact, while many Americans still feel a sense of shame about the Salem witch trials because of the large size, and particularly their late date, a European perspective eases some of the angst. By European standards, Salem was not even a large witch hunt. Nor was it the last. In terms of size, a series of witch hunts in German electorate of cologne that started in 1626 and continued for a decade resulted in approximately 2000 people being executed and in terms of date some persecutions continued in enlightened 18th century europe in hungary about 800 people were executed for witchcraft between 1710 and 1750 hmm. the siege trials of 1728 to 1729 claimed 21 victims Three of the accused drowned during the swimming test. People who floated were witches, while those who sank and often drowned were innocent. 31 of the accused died in prison, apparently during torture, and 16 people were convicted and burned at the stake. The more scholars that study witchcraft accusations, the more they realise that witch- witchcraft accusations seem nearly universal and have occurred throughout recorded history all over the world, which is absolutely true. And in all honesty, we were the worst in England. We we were absolutely the worst. We were diabolical. Ooh, we really were. There were major witch hunts in fourteen nations on three continents in the second half of the twentieth century, resulting in the death of hundreds of people. Yet no place has acquired such infamy as the witch city. Why is it that only Salem is synonymous with witchcraft, and not such other places like Lorn or Siege? Clearly, some unique factors were at work to give the trials and the community such a lasting reputation. The fact that there is only one witch city suggests that the Salem trials have a significance far greater than Perry Miller recognised. Indeed, even he acknowledged that immediately after the trials the word witchcraft itself almost vanished from public discourse, and that this silence speaks volumes. There's no arguing that what happened in Salem and throughout New England in 1692 and the following years has haunted us ever since. Most histories of Salem stop once the trials and executions end. However, and in the process, they miss its lasting significance. One reason that witchcraft disappeared from public record was that the government of Massachusetts Bay insisted upon it, engaging in one of the first cover-ups in American history. Governor Sir William Phipps banned the publication of any account of the witch trials, even before the trials ended. People realised that something had gone horribly wrong, and that some innocent people had died. According to Puritan theology, someone who committed a sin had to confess it before God. The state failed to acknowledge publicly the sin of arresting, trying and executing people who were innocent of any crime failed to do so, jeopardize Puritans' covenant with God and the foundation of their belief. However, Cotton Mathers, Wonder of the Invisible World, which attempted to whitewash the whole affair, escaped censorship and gained the governor's endorsement. Mathers' spin served to protect the fragile administration of Phipps. A close political ally of the Mathers' Beset by internal division and locked in a desperate military struggle with the French and their native allies, the new royal government could not afford a public acknowledgement that the judicial system had wrongly executed nineteen people, imprisoned more than a hundred. Such an admission would have brought down the government and threatened the survival of the Puritan. City upon a hill. The suppression of troops by Phipps, Mather and others, helped to make the Salem Trials a turning point in American history. Mather's book was an intellectual and moral failure, for in many ways it discredited this last great Puritan theologian and his cause. The witch trials would not end Puritanism as a dominant political and societal force, but they sealed its fate indeed. The witch trials contributed to the end of John Winthrop's dream of a polity that contained and embodied Puritan, spiritual, legal, social and educational ideals. For the trials and their long and disputed aftermath divided soul from soul and brought out and magnified schism and disagreements on every level in the Bay Colony, the Congregational Church would not be destroyed disestablished as the state religion of Massachusetts until 1833. But after 1692, Puritan ministers would no longer sit at the right hand of the governor. Furthermore, the behaviour of Phipps and Mathers created a lasting animosity between the governor and the Massachusetts Bay legislature. The legislature would never again trust a royal governor a fact that would eventually result in revolution, and despite their efforts, opposing views would surface. The first complaint was made by Thomas Mowell, a Salem Quaker who had truth held forth and maintained printed in the New York to skirt the ban. The book was a stinging general criticism of the Massachusetts government, including a condemnation of the trials. Officials seized and burned Moll's books and imprisoned him for twelve months. Yet, at his sixteen ninety six trial, for seditious libel, the jury acquitted Moll, a decision that sometimes viewed as the first victory for freedom of the press in America. Few histories of Salem mention Moll, but his story is a key example of how the trials grew in importance in the aftermath, and in unexpected ways. Efforts by accused witches and their families to restore their innocence are another significant but rarely explored aspect of the trials. There were public acts of contrition. Judge Samuel Sewall's 1697, apology and Massachusetts, 1711, reversal of attainder are the best known. Yet these were not sufficient, Dozens of petitions were submitted to the government asking for restoration of seized property, reimbursement for damages, restoration of innocency for victims of 1692. The last such petition was submitted in 1750, nearly six decades after the trials, and the last five witches were not officially exonerated until 2001. 2001. Like over here, it took us years to get that, that done over here too. The recurrence of these petitions ensured that Salem's storm did not entirely blow over. Instead, as Gretchen Adams has shown in her book, The Spectre of Salem that is, by the early 19th century Salem, became a metaphor for persecution across America. One repeatedly invoked for a wide range of causes and arguments. Rather than proposing new interpretations of the events of 1692, we're going to make sense of it. We're not going to Put things in there and make crap up as we go along. We're going to focus on the accused witches. The people they allegedly bewitched. Explore the theories. Put forth an explanation to the spread of it. Generalize questions, I suppose. Look at ailments. Did they genuinely believe the witches were practising black magic? Who knows? Most of the trials have viewed them from the perspective of social awe. Cultural history. Yet we really do have to look at religious states here as well, and we have to look at the full framework behind what was happening. The families, the people, the relationships. Were they neighbours? Were they friends? Why did they act this way? There's got to be other reasons. While the actions of 69's Sugar Colony resulted in the deaths of 25 people the witch in itself is not a signal event. Phipps and Cell have lost many more lives and almost destroyed the economy of Bay Colony just two years earlier, while leading a failed invasion of Quebec. Nearly 400 men died on the expedition, which cost the colony fifty thousand pounds It was a decisive event, yet soon overshadowed by Salem. So, as you can see, to overshadow something as big as that, and that is big because... Let's be honest. It's was big when things like that happen. It's big, yet Salem, of it overshadowed it all, didn't it? So that's what we're going to do. We're now going to look into the Salem Witch Trials, but we're going to look at them properly and address each part as we go through them, rather than just fancying them for the sake of Hollywood. For the sake of listeners to enjoy them, you might not enjoy it as much as the lies that they put out there. But it will be fact, which is what's the most important thing here, is that we get the facts, not the fiction. Many blessings.